We are in Matthew today, it's Matthew 26, if you want to turn there, if you're new to the Bible, it's in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, it's the first book, chapter 26, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 35 today. Just a quick note, recently we've been lifting up the situation in Ukraine, and the fact that we have two missionaries in uh, Moldova and Crimea, bordering uh, areas uh, that are serving the refugees and the needs there, and so... If you've wanted to give to that, we've uh, talked about that opportunity, and today if you want, we're going to kind of send off a gift this week, I believe, and so if you want to be part of that, you can mark your check, uh, Ukraine, and put it in the black box by the door, and we'll make sure that our missions team sends that off um, just to help with the needs there. I'm going to read our text today and make some comments along the way just because there's a ton going on. I want to bring us up to speed as we're... Um, as we're reading this and kind of bring the context. So let's dive in. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Matthew writes, When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, Passover begins in two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. At that same time, the leading or chief priests and elders, that's a way of saying the Sanhedrin, we're meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, who was high priest. Just a note about Caiaphas that is important to know. In the old days, the office of high priest was handed down hereditarily, and it was for life. But during the Roman occupation, when they ruled in Palestine, there were a lot of high priests coming and going. Uh, historians tell us that between the years 27 B.C. and 67 A.D., there were no less than 28 high priests. That's how tumultuous and the crazy the turnover was. But Caiaphas was high priest from AD 18 to AD 36. So what that tells us is he was very political. He was very good at kissing up to the Romans and not really performing his job for the Jewish people. He was good at being two-faced. Verse 4, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But during the Passover celebration, they, they agreed was not the best time because the people might riot. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian writing at this time, said that this particular year there were 256,000 lambs that were sacrificed for Passover. And the Jews had, had a rule that it was one lamb for at least every 10 to 20 people because they didn't want lambs to go to waste and they didn't want just individuals or couples. So it was, you had to get together communally as a family. And so one lamb represented 10 to 20 people. So the 256 lambs represented just under 3 million people in Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, it's a small area. It's a lot of people. And there, was a lot of, there were a lot of riots and a lot of craziness going on. And the Jewish authorities didn't want to rock the boat at this time because it was a very chaotic time. Verse 6. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head. The disciples were indignant when they saw this. What a waste, they said. It could have been sold for a high price and the money gone and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, replied, Why criticize the woman for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. 
It's interesting that when we read the list of women who were at the tomb on Sunday morning to anoint Jesus' body, Mary of Bethany isn't one of them because she had already done it. Verse 14, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priest and asked, How much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. From that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Verse 17, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? As you go into the city, he told them, you will see a certain man. Tell him, the teacher said, my time has come and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. Jesus is divinely orchestrating this, uh, this room to be available for his disciples to have this upper room experience, much like the way that he orchestrated for the disciples to get the donkey on Palm Sunday and for the triumphal in, uh, entry. This kind of a providential ordering of circumstances here. Verse 19, so the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover, Passover meal there. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? He replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. And the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. That's wow. Verse 25, Judas, the one who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. It's interesting because this is a Greek construction that has a way of turning responsibility back on the one who asked the question. It's the same um, grammatical thing that's going on in verse 64 that we're going to look at next week when Caiaphas, when he's trying, Jesus says to him, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? And Jesus says the same thing. It's as you have said. You've said it yourself. You've pronounced the truth yourself. Own it. It's also clear here, I just want to make a note, that Jesus' disciples don't really know what's going on. If they had known what was going on, they would not have let Judas leave the room alive. John's Gospel adds the fact that since Judas was kind of the treasurer for the disciples, he was always taking money and going out and securing things and doing things. And most of the disciples were confused thinking that Jesus was telling them about something that needed to be attended to. They didn't get the weight of what was happening here. Verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and said, Each one of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Most scholars believe, most theologians believe, that the hymn that would normally have been sung would have been the latter part of the Hallel. The Hallel is found in Psalms 114 to Psalm 118. And it was sung antiphonally, meaning that Jesus would sing out the lines, and then his disciples would respond 
with the chorus and say, Alleluia, Alleluia. And parts of this hymn must have been incredibly moving to the disciples later on when they realized what Jesus was saying to them. Because the parts of the Psalms talk about him pledging that he would keep his vows. And that ultimately he would triumph despite rejection. And that all the nations would praise God for his covenant love. And so you just you, you can imagine how meaningful and how powerful this would have been after the fact when they realized the import and the weight of what they had been singing right before all the, the events of the weekend and the crucifixion. Verse 31. On the way, Jesus told them, tonight all of you will desert me. <coughs> Excuse me. The Greek word here, and I never share the Greek word unless you understand it, is the word skandalizomai. It's the word from which we get our English word scandalized or scandal. It's the title of our sermon today. Jesus is saying, tonight all of you will be scandalized by me. For the scriptures say that God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Verse 33, Peter declared, even if everyone else is scandalized by you, I will never be scandalized by you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same thing. A lot going on in our passage today. And I want to begin by saying there are four different anointings in the gospel. And they get very confusing and your head starts to, to swim. There's this one in Matthew 26. Mark's is in Mark chapter 14. John has one in chapter 12. And Luke has one in chapter 7 of his gospel. But you can look at this later and check it out. But Luke's gospel chapter 7 is a different story different characters, different events. It's a sinful woman who comes, and in fact, the Greek there is that she is the, 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 the center of the city. Everybody knows her, and she is anointing Jesus' feet, and, and it's in the home of Simon the Pharisee. Simon the leper would have never been a Pharisee even if Jesus had healed him and cured him. The Pharisees would have never allowed that. So, completely different situation. And all of this to say that Matthew and Mark seem to be organizing the events of the anointing thematically and not chronologically. If you want to turn for a moment, turn with me to John chapter 12, a few books to the right. And I want to show you just a few things here so that you can reconcile this and you can check it out later. Both Matthew and Mark seem to be talking about the chief priests and the elders wanting to arrest Jesus and then kind of doing a flashback four days earlier to the events of um, the anointing. But John seems to be organizing it chronologically. And in John chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, so Saturday night after Sabbath is ending, Sabbath is from Friday night when the sun starts going down until Saturday night when the sun starts going down. And then they're able to walk again and breathe again and do things. And so the meal was Saturday night before the Passover. He came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. We always assumed that it was Lazarus' home. But no, Lazarus was at the home of Simon the leper. And it goes on to say, 
So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. So we get those details. Many theologians and scholars have speculated that uh, Simon the leper was the father of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And I don't know how much weight there is to that. We'll find out one day. Not worth uh, dying on that hill. But they do so because they're trying to reconcile the fact that uh, Matthew and Mark talk about it being in his home. And here it seems like it's in Mary and Martha and Lazarus's home. Although, if you really look at John 12, it doesn't have to be. And if you go a little bit further in John 12, verse 12, it says, The next day the large crowd had come, which was Palm Sunday. So you can see that John, unlike the other Gospels, is presenting things chronologically. So all of that to say that the events that we're talking about here in the anointing take place on Saturday night, six days before the Passover. A final point that's worth noting is that in the last week of Jesus' earthly life, it tells us that uh, Mark eleven nineteen, when evening came, they would go out of the city. Uh, Luke 21, 37, every day Jesus went to the temple to teach, and each evening he returned to spend the night on the Mount of Olives. Because he knew that the authorities wanted to arrest him, because he was sovereignly, divinely in charge of his own life and the timing of his death right until the moment he breathed his last, he was spending the nights outside of the city. And uh, the, 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 the facts are that Bethany was two miles east of Jerusalem on the south slopes of the Mount of Olives, and that's where he would spend the night. And he would spend a lot of those evenings as well in the home of Mary and Martha and people of Bethany. Well, there's a lot of details in our passage. And if you got the teaching teacher this week, I was saying that on the surface, what's going on in our text looks really troubling and really distressing. I mean, there's the anointing, and they, call, they interpret that as a complete waste. There's the betrayal, and there's the denial. And like, what is possibly here that has any redeeming value? And I want to bring that out today. And I want to show you how things appear one way on the surface. But if we look deeper, we see the beauty of what God is doing. First of all, let's talk about the anointing. The, the spark, spikenard oil, as it was, was extracted from the roots of spikes of nard plants that grew in northern India. It was extremely precious and costly. And a Roman pound was 12 ounces instead of our 16. And so Mary has 12 ounces of this very expensive perfume. John in his gospel accentuates the fact that it was very expensive. And ordinarily, you would anoint a guest's head with oil, and cheap olive oil at that, not expensive perfume, and the feet would only get washed with plain water. Perfume on the feet was almost unheard of. But the, the point here is that Mary is going the extra mile. She is going above and beyond for the one who went above and beyond in raising her brother from the dead. Lazarus has been raised in the last week, maybe two weeks, and Mary and the whole family is still filled with amazing gratitude and thankfulness for what Jesus had done. And so she anoints him with such a liberal amount, it says, when you piece it together, uh, John talks about Jesus' head being anointed. Matthew and Mark talk about his feet being anointed. So it's really his whole body. And it's such a liberal amount that it says that afterwards she has to dry off his feet from all of the excess 
in that John says in John uh, 12, 3, that the whole room was filled with the fragrance of this anointing. And you can correct me later if I'm wrong, but I was thinking about it this week. I can't think of another place in all of the New Testament where someone actually does what Jesus needs. It really hit me. Jesus in his humanity had needs to be comforted, to have people uh, act like they got what he was saying. And, and Mary seems to be the one person who understood what he was saying, who took him at his word and responded uh, in, in, in this beautiful way. In, in Luke chapter 10, we read about the story of Jesus going to Mary and Martha and Lazarus' home. Martha's busy cooking. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha gets all bothered. Why isn't Mary helping me? Some have wondered whether this is the same event, where after she's sitting at his feet, she later gets up and anoints his feet. Whether it's the same event or not, it's clear that Mary was dialed into her Lord. She was listening. She wasn't wrapped up in busyness. She wasn't distracted. She was actually listening to the Lord. And so she does this beautiful thing of anointing his feet. The disciples were anxious to help the poor. But even the rabbis had said, God always allows the poor to be with us so that opportunities for doing good may never fail. And as someone once wisely observed, there are some things that we can do at any time. But there are some things that can be done only once. And to miss the opportunity to do them is to miss the opportunity forever. And I thought, this is one of those moments. This is the last day of Jesus' life. And she gets it, and she does exactly what he needs. How heartwarming that must have been for him. I think the application for us is that so many times in life, as we talk about priorities and ordering our schedule, it's not a choice between good and bad, but often it's a choice between good and, and best. And, and the older and more mature we get in our faith, it's, it's not always black and white. But it's, there's a lot of good things to do. What's the best? What's, what's going to be the most fruitful? What's going to be the most beneficial? What's going to bless the most amount of people? And this is one of those decisions. What the disciples called waste in verse 8, Jesus viewed in verse 10 as a beautiful thing, as a good deed. Mark chapter 14, verse 8, Jesus says, she has done what she could, not meaning that it was a pathetic thing that she did, but basically, uh, she, what she had, she used. What she had, she used. And I think about last week's lesson with the sheep and the goats. Jesus isn't expecting heroics from us. Remember last week we said everything that Jesus was evaluating the sheep and the goats on the basis of were achievable things. Did you feed me? Did you clothe me? Did you give me something to drink when I was thirsty? Did you visit me when I was in prison or when I was sick? Things that don't take a lot of money, that don't take supernatural strength, things that anyone can do. And how often uh, we fail to use what we have to meet the need before us. But Mary gets it. Both Mark and John record the disciples saying that the perfume could have been sold for 300 denarii. And um, that basically represents a whole year's wages. So this is a lot of money here. To put it, to put it in perspective, 
um, or to think of it another way, when Jesus and the disciples were discussing at the feeding of the 5,000, where are we going to get enough food to feed this large of a crowd? You know, 5,000 people, and, and that day they weren't counting the women and the children, so it was more like 20,000 people. And Philip on this occasion said, even 200 denarii would barely be enough to feed them. And so to put this in perspective, 300 denarii was enough to feed a crowd of 20,000 people. It's a lot of money. It's a year's wages. And she is pouring it over his body to anoint him. One person wrote, on this occasion, the voice of common sense said, what a waste. But there's a big difference between the economics of common sense and the economics of love. Common sense obeys the dictates of prudence, but love obeys the dictates of the heart. A gift is never really a gift when it can be easily afforded. A gift truly becomes a gift only when there is a sacrifice behind it and when we give far more than we can afford. And that's exactly what Mary did. It's ironic <clears throat> that Judas is the one leading the charge and saying, what a waste. It could have gone to the poor because John tells us that as the treasurer of the disciples, he was always wanting the money to come into the money purse because he would, he would frequently steal out of it for his own purposes. He didn't care about the poor at all. He just wanted to have more money that he could use for himself. So, he was the one leading this charge, but it's also ironic because <clears throat> Jesus later in John, John uh, chapter 17, verse 12, uses the same Greek word <clears throat> of, for waste here to refer to him. That word waste can also mean perdition or destruction. And Jesus says this, while I was with them, he's praying to his father, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them and not one of them perished except the son of perdition, the son of destruction, the son of waste, so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not meaning that Judas couldn't have done otherwise, but just, again, God in his omniscience knew what was going to happen and predicted it ahead of time. John's gospel best captures Jesus' response that shut the disciples down. Jesus says in John 12, 7, let her alone so that she may keep it, meaning the perfume, for the day of my burial. And really the meaning here is that it was intended that she have it or keep it for the day of my burial, which ended up being that very moment. Because Mary wasn't at the tomb on Sunday morning, and this was immediately before his death. And she, by the grace of God and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was anointing him exactly when he needed to be anointed. So that's where we see what we see on the, on the surface as waste being used beautifully by the Lord. Secondly, in our passage, we see this theme of betrayal. Betrayal. Someone once observed, the height of disloyalty and betrayal is sharing a meal with a friend before turning on them. Just think about that. Judas is sharing a meal with the other disciples, and his, he even has the gall to say, am I the one? Knowing full well that he's the one. And we know how it unfolds. He, he reveals Jesus in the garden. We're going to find that in next week's lesson, the one after. And he actually comes up to him and kisses him to betray him. Think if you're Jesus, how difficult that would be to have that kind of 
just insincerity, that kind of hypocrisy, betraying you and giving you away. Notice that in verse 22, the other disciples around the, deta- uh, the table were continually addressing Jesus as Lord, but Jesus calls him rabbi and teacher. And it's interesting, if you search throughout the Gospels, Judas never called him Lord. He always called him rabbi and teacher. It's kind of this, this keeping his distance from, from the Lord and not really owning him as his master. The sum that Judas agreed to betray Jesus for was 30 pieces of silver. They were shekels, and it was worth just under six months' wages. And you think, well, that's, that's a lot of money. But to put it in perspective, it was also the price that was awarded a master whose servant uh, would be accidentally gored by an ox. So if a master had a servant out in the field working who was accidentally gored by an ox, that was the same amount of money that was awarded to the master to, to buy another servant. So six months wages, but in perspective, not really a lot of money to betray the Lord. And as we've seen, betrayal on the surface is an ugly, horrible thing. What redeeming, saving grace could we possibly see in this act of betrayal? And what I want to show you is that even betrayal is not beyond the purpose and the plan and the power of God. There's something amazing going on here. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, the Apostle Paul makes this, uh, actually it's Peter. Peter's giving a sermon. He he says this, this point that I want to highlight here. Peter says, this man, meaning Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The New Living Translation says, but God knew what would happen and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. So again, God in his foreknowledge and in his omniscience knowing all things, it was not a surprise to him. And God allowed for it to play out in order that scripture might be fulfilled. So again, What in this horrible act can we possibly find that has any saving grace, any redeeming value? Well, consider this. Consider that the same Greek word that is used to um, convey this idea, this theme of betrayal, it means to, to betray or to give over, can also have a positive meaning when referring to God's work. We touched upon this when we talked about the parable of the talents. John 19.30 says this, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Same word. He betrayed his spirit. He gave it over. Same word in Romans 8.32. God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over, gave him over, betrayed him for us all, How will he not also with him freely give us all things? But then it's also used in the book of Acts, chapter 15, verse 26, to talk about Paul and his ministry partners who literally risked their lives, gave their lives over, betrayed their own lives for the sake of the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ. So the giving over of oneself is not a negative thing in itself. It can be very beautiful and redemptive. in in the hands and the purpose of God. Judas happened to use it for a very ugly, 
horrible thing. The last theme that I want to touch upon today is this theme of denial, which seems to be just all that Peter is known for. And the question I want to begin with is, you know, that, that word scandalize. How is it that Jesus can scandalize us? And I wonder if some of us in this room have been scandalized by the Lord. Maybe, maybe it's the issue of evil in the world, you know. Maybe that's the thing we just can't get over. How can a loving God, an all-powerful God, allow evil in the world? Maybe it's more personal than that. Maybe it's not the general evil in the world, but maybe it's the evil in your own life. How can God allow the things that have happened to me in my life to have happened if he really loved me, if he really cared? For others of you, maybe it's, it's prayers that haven't been answered or that God seems to ignore, that he just doesn't seem to care about. All of us have something that causes us from time to time to be scandalized by Christ by Jesus, because his plan and his timing isn't the same as ours. And we want to believe that in the end, he works all things together for good, and that in the end, he really has our best interest in mind. But sometimes our reality and our situation contradicts the truth that we so desperately want to grasp onto. And we're scandalized by him. It's pretty sobering to consider that despite Peter's claims of loyalty, Jesus informs him that he's within hours of disowning him, of denying him, three times, three times. Peter hadn't learned the lesson that God, and Jesus for that matter, didn't need him for his strength. He always came to God in his strength. He's cutting off the, the servant's ear. He's saying, even if everyone else you know, denies you, I'll die for you. All of all the, these heroics that he's promising Jesus. In chapter 16, back in chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 22, when, when Jesus had revealed, hey, I'm headed for the cross, and they're going to they're beat me up, and they're going to crucify me, and Peter takes him aside. And the text says that he takes Jesus aside. He literally rebukes him. He scolds him. And he says, Lord, may it never be. May it never be. This will never happen to you. And that's when Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan, because you're putting the interests of man in front of the interests of God. And really what Jesus is saying, the, the option you're, you're giving to me right now is so tempting. In my flesh, I want to lay hold of that. God knows I don't want to have to do the cross, but I know it's, it, it, it has to happen. But now again here in our, in our passage, Peter is challenging, he's contradicting Christ. What you're saying is not going to happen because I'm going to fight for us. As if Jesus needed his, his, his help. Rather than believing him at his word like Mary did. All of the disciples said no. They, they, they pledged the same thing. No, Lord, never. We will die first. Mary is the one disciple that is listening to him and saying, I believe you. As much as I don't want to believe that, I believe that you're going to die. And I'm preparing you. I'm anointing you. And I guess the lesson that we learn in this is that you never know how much you need a Savior until you reach your lowest point. Until you do things that you never thought you were capable of doing. You know, most of us think we're pretty good church people. We get dressed up. We clean ourselves up pretty well. But then you go along in life and you do something 
that just disgusts you. And it just, you feel so shame. You feel so unworthy. And that's when you know how much you need a Savior. And Peter knew that. And it's, it's the lesson that the Apostle Paul learns in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He, he had this thorn in the flesh that he so desperately wanted God to remove because I, I think his thought was how much more he could serve the Lord in his strength. But the lesson he learned is that in my weakness, his strength is made perfect. God does not need my strength. He uses even my weakness for his glory and for his purposes. And I think that's what each one of us has to come to terms with. It's not, it's not fighting for the Lord or cutting off someone's ear to defend the Lord. It's, it's realizing that he, he knows our failures, he knows our sin even before we do. Our, our sin does not take God by surprise, as we've said before. And he loves us anyways. He loves us in spite of that. There's an amazing insight to be gained and learned in the parallel account of this in Luke's gospel. Um, Luke's gospel, uh, losing my place here, says, and here we go. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 32. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's kind of uh, an insight into a conversation that Jesus has with Peter that Matthew doesn't include. At this very moment, at the same time when Peter's professing his love for the Lord and Jesus is saying, you're going to deny me. And Jesus says, Satan wants to sift you, but I pray that your faith may not fail. And the Greek word for fail there is the Greek word from which we get our English word eclipse. Eclipse. So what Jesus is saying, that your faith may not eclipse. Literally like the light of the sun or the moon fails, causing an eclipse. I pray that my light and strength in you may not fail. But then listen to this. In the same passage, in the same verse, Jesus goes on to say this. And you, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers and sisters. The amazing thing to me is that Jesus not only anticipates and predicts his failure, his sin, but he also anticipates and predicts his restoration. And not just his restoration, but his usefulness. The fact that he's able to be fruitful, that he's able to contribute to the kingdom. You are going to turn around and you're going to loathe your denial of me. You're going to be so ashamed of that, but that's okay. Because you're still mine, and I'm going to use you, and you're going to end up strengthening your brothers and sisters. Powerful, powerful thing here. Matthew 16, 24. Consider Jesus' original invitation to the disciples. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Following Jesus involves a denial but it's a self-denial. And it really has to do with our identity. I was thinking about that this week. Both confession and denial have to do with our identity, either aligning ourselves with Jesus or disassociating ourselves from him. It's pretty powerful. 
as disciples of Jesus, we're either aligning ourselves with him, uh, and it's so much more than just intellectually aligning ourselves with thinking the right things about him, having correct theology, but it's about aligning our hearts with him. Because Jesus said, wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure is. If you make me your treasure, I'll have you. You'll be, I'll be your passion. And that's what Jesus was after. And it's a beautiful thing to look at. You can go and check it out later. But John chapter 21, when Jesus recommissions Peter after the resurrection, it's interesting that three times he asked Peter, not, do you believe in me? Do you believe in me? But do you love me? Do you love me? Because it's your heart love for me, not just your correct views about me that are going to transform your life and allow you to be a huge uh, player in the kingdom of God. And I just, I think about that application for you and I as well, that being a Christian is not just believing the right things, but it's about allowing those things to capture your heart and change the way that you live. I want to close here with just a few thoughts. One person said, the intimacy of the Last Supper is quickly replaced by disloyalty and cowardice. And that's true. You have this intimate moment where he's in the upper room, John 15, 16, 17, saying these wonderful things to them, praying these amazing things to his father in their presence, washing their feet as their servant, all of this amazing stuff. And it ends in the garden with them uh, running and scattering from him, just as was predicted. But Jesus' words twice in our passage, in verse 24 and verse 34, uh, actually verse 31, we read the words, for it is written. And for it is written tells us that even the disciples' defection and failure, even our defection and failure is part of God's plan. He, he anticipates it. He knows it. It's not beyond his ability to use. It's not the end of the story. And in that upper room, for the very first time, Jesus has communion with them. He's never done that before. For the very first time, he's saying, this bread represents my body. And this wine represents my blood that will be shed for you. What he's saying is that I, my very body, is going to be the once and for all sacrifice that every other previous Passover lamb only foreshadowed and anticipated that every Old Testament sacrifice only anticipated and foreshadowed I am the once and for all sacrifice that will take care of sins for all time and that's what he instituted in that upper room I love what Barbara Taylor wrote in her book called Gospel Medicine Blood Covenant she said when Jesus holds up the cup and offers what's in it as the fluid of forgiveness He's not talking to people with a short list of minor sins. He's talking to people who will turn on him, who will scatter to the four winds at the first sign of trouble, and who will swear they never knew him. He's talking to people who should have been his best friends on earth, but who turn out not to have a loyal bone in their bodies. And he's forgiving them ahead of time. As surely as if he has said, I know who you are. I know that you will not be innocent of the blood of this cup. But I will not let that come between us. Let my life become your life through the blood of this covenant. That's what Jesus was doing for his disciples, and that's 
what he does for us. I love that Jesus repeatedly promised his disciples that he would meet them in Galilee, that he would go ahead of them and meet them in Galilee. And the picture that the gospel writers are wanting to paint for you and I and for all readers of the Bible is it's the picture of a shepherd going before his sheep and they're going to find him because they follow him. John chapter 10 verse 4 says, when the good shepherd puts forth all of his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And the cross and the resurrection is the way that he redeems us and restores us and leads us back to the Father. Let's pray.